One of the greatest scientists of our time was undoubtedly Albert Einstein. He was a man so focused on uh, scientific theory and stuff, he often neglected even the most simple things in life, such as his personal experience, uh, sorry, his personal appearance, as you can tell by the look of his hair. I won't say that reminds me of certain people's hair in this congregation, but there we go. There's a great story told against Albert Einstein. I think it was one he told uh, himself. He was on a train uh, one day uh, going, uh, just making this train journey, and the conductor came down uh, to take people's tickets just to make sure they all had one. And uh, the conductor came to Albert Einstein and said, could I have your ticket? And he's like, you ever had that moment on a train where you're Where's my ticket? Couldn't find it. And the conductor says, it's all right, Mr. Einstein. I know who you are. Don't worry about it. No, no, he said, I need to find my ticket. Looking everywhere. Can't find it. Conductor says to him again, please don't worry about it. It's fine. I know who you are. Like everybody knows who you are. It's fine. I'm sure you bought a ticket. So the conductor carries on. As he's about halfway down the carriageway, he looks back. Albert Einstein's on his hands and knees on the floor of the carriage, looking for his ticket. He's looking and looking and looking, and the conductor goes back to him again and says, Mr. Einstein, please, it's fine. I know you've got a ticket. It will be okay. Albert Einstein looks at the conductor and he goes, I know I've got a ticket. You know I've got a ticket. The thing is, I don't know where I'm going. I need to find my ticket. <laughs> I think that's a true story said against him. The Christians in Colossae, if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a Bible app or whatever on your phone, uh, there should be a Bible at the end of every pew as well. Why don't you turn to the book of Colossians this morning? Um, the, the Christians in Colossae were an amazing uh, collection of people. They um, had gone to the point where they too were a little confused. They were a little unsure about where they were going. The problem is somebody had come in amongst them and had started to see so seeds of doubt in their minds. They, they weren't convinced, for instance, that they were actually going to go to heaven. Uh, somebody had stepped into their ranks, begun to tell them that, well, you know, they weren't really acceptable to God. And it's fair to say that they were confused so much that they by now weren't even sure what was expected of them anymore day by day as they lived out their lives as Christians. They'd gotten to the point where not only did they not know where they were going, they weren't even sure who they were. And to understand what was going on here, it perhaps helps to realize that back in the days when this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, behind the scenes, there was a, a terrific spiritual tension going on between different factions. People were at loggerheads with one another. The congregation at Colossae was composed mainly of what we call Gentile believers. A Gentile was anyone who was not of Jewish descent. I'm guessing we're all Gentiles, right? Anybody here of Jewish descent? Maybe? No? So we're all Gentiles. And we come from that side of things. Gentiles, if you read the New Testament in particular, you'll know they'd always been despised by God's people. The Jews referred to them as dogs. Indeed, they called them 
much worse names than that were names I can't use on a Sunday morning with a family congregation. And uh, Jews refused flatly to spend any time with them. Uh, they wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't work with them. They wouldn't socialize with them. If a Jew purchased anything from a Gentile, the product was washed to the nth degree to cleanse it from the filth that the Jewish recipient presumed was on it because it had come from somebody who wasn't a Jew. So when the church first got started in the early, books, uh, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it's no surprise that really there were very few Gentiles around. But if you read through the book of Acts, it's tremendous to see that after the church had established itself in Jerusalem, you come to Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter is given a vision by God, uh, which breaks through all of this hullabaloo. And uh, the once hated Gentiles, Peter is told, no, no, they are acceptable to God. They can receive salvation. They can be made right with God through faith in Jesus. And you may remember that God sends Peter to the house of a Roman centurion, a guy called Cornelius, uh, to preach the gospel to him and his family. Now, you can understand, I'm sure, that while all of this was going on, there was absolute uproar in the rank and file. Really quickly, Peter, along with a bunch of henchmen, all of whom were very Jewish, uh, arrive on the scene. Basically, the Jewish believers didn't like what was going on, and they had every intention of circumcising these Jewish dogs before they ever let them be baptized. Now, it didn't matter, you know, it, it, this was grown men. You didn't need to be a baby anymore, so let me say, you know, ouch, the idea of that, Okay. But as you see these chapters in Acts unfold, you see that God has got something else on his mind. And it's amazing. If you want to read through Acts 10, Acts 11, through to 15, you'll see the tension and the struggle that there was in the early church. Now, when we talk about people coming to faith, I guess the usual way we understand it is pretty much along these lines. You maybe can't see that very clearly, but... We would say that a person would hear the gospel, they would believe it, they'd repent of the wrong in their lives, confess Jesus as Lord, and then, of course, because we're Baptists, we baptize them. And that's the, the common pattern that we would hold to of the journey of faith. A person has to hear the gospel, hear the good news about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. They hear that, they believe it. They understand that, uh, as uh, we often look at on the Alpha course, for instance, uh, you don't need uh, just biblical evidence to prove the existence of Jesus, or that he died, or that there was this suspicion going around that he'd been raised from the dead. Uh, you can do that with what we call extant biblical uh, sources. So if you hear about all of this, and you come to a point of believing it, that changes everything in your life. You suddenly realize that maybe the way you've been living is not right. That you are not unero numero, you are not top dog, you're not the boss. You've lived your life wrongly. And so you need to repent of that. 
You need to change and ask for forgiveness for that. So you hear it, you believe it, you repent, and you confess that God's number one. Jesus comes into your life. He is Lord and Savior. And you do that then by, in this church, demonstrating it through the act of baptism. Tracy Island takes place here. It's a wonderful thing. As the uh, stage disappears, the bubbling pool, jacuzzi-like, emerges. That'd be lovely. But uh, you're baptized there as a believer. You are confessing what has taken place inside of you. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It is purely showing everybody that you are a Christian. It's an outward demonstration of an inner reality. That's what baptism is all about. So that's the usual pattern that we talk about when people come to faith. And uh, in baptism, we also lay hands on people. If you look in the New Testament, you'll see the apostles regularly laid hands on people. And at that point, God would very often give them a special gift, like preaching or speaking in tongues or whatever. The amazing thing as you read through the book of Acts, though, is that God short-circuits some of this uh, as he wants to prove that the Gentiles are acceptable to him. So, uh, before Cornelius and his household could express their firm belief in Jesus, before they could declare they wanted to repent of their sins, before they could confess Jesus as Lord, before they were baptized, God made it clear the dogs, the filth, these Gentiles were acceptable. And they were acceptable just as they were. No, they didn't need to be baptized. Uh, sorry, they didn't need to be circumcised. They could come as they were. Uncircumcised, unbaptized Gentiles. And then you see this lovely thing happening in the book of Acts where these people receive Christ, receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they're speaking in tongues, there are healings, all sorts of things happening. And at that point, Peter turns up to the Jews that were, and uh, he turns to the Jews that were with him and he says these tremendous words in Acts 10, 47. Can anyone keep these people from being baptized? And it's beautiful. He asks that question because it's exactly what the Jewish believers wanted to stop happening. They didn't want to allow Gentile dogs to enter the waters of baptism. They didn't want them to go any further forward in their faith without being circumcised. But here was God declaring he'd accepted them as they were. And now no one dared say no to their baptism. Now, as in every Baptist church, you know, there may be the bulk of people go along with this and they say, well, okay, fair enough. God hath decreed this. This is the way it's done. He has shown what he wants us to do by 52% of the church members meeting. Okay. But you always get the few grumblers, whingers. I'm just looking who's on the back row. We're okay. They often sit in the back row. They're not there this morning. But you get the whingers, don't you? You always get them. And they're here as well. It's nothing new. It's not just in 2018. You get the whingers who refuse to accept this. And what they would do is they would 
go around visiting as many Gentile churches as they could, demanding that these Gentile believers become Jews. Only then would they be proper Christians. And they were known as the circumcisers. And it seems that this group had arrived in Colossae. And their message was basically this. Unless you are physically circumcised, unless you've obeyed the laws of the Old Testament on top of everything else taught in the church, unless you keep the Jewish festivals, high days and holy days, you are not a Christian. You're not saved. You can't be a Christian. You're not acceptable to God. There is no hope of you ever reaching heaven. And so there's this big big discussion about what on earth are we going to do and so in Acts chapter 15 you get this big big meeting a big council and it's called and they uh, meet together and share and they have to acknowledge God's working things can't remain the same and Rosemary's going to come and she's going to read two little sections for us firstly about the council And then later in Acts chapter 15, something about the letter that is sent. Thanks, Rosemary. Come and read these passages for us. Thank you. Acts chapter 15, 1 to 9. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came up to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Do I go on to the next one? With them, they sent the following letter. 
the apostles and elders, your brother, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Thanks, Rosemary. So you can see how the early church wanted to address this problem. They sent a letter. It's very clear that in that letter they're basically saying, okay, we know God has accepted you. But bring all of that history with you as you look at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And you'll understand that, well, there was a bit of insecurity amongst these Gentile believers. Were they real Christians? Did God really accept them? My guess is in a congregation of this size, there will be some of you sat here this morning who can totally identify with those kinds of questions. Because there are times in your life when you question, does God really love me? Will I really go to heaven? Am I acceptable to him? Insecurity in our faith is a very real issue. And one that we need to address again and again. The enemy loves to try and snatch any kind of confidence we have about our faith and the reality of it. Paul tells the, the Colossian Christians that they need to be confident in their salvation. He tells them in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Look, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, look, the gospel's bearing fruit. It's growing throughout the whole world. In other words, what you guys believe, other people believe, there are wonderful things happening. You know, and this is the kind of thing we remind ourselves of, isn't it? It's not just about what's happening in Risca. It's about what's happening with Reen and Gwaur in North Wales. It's about what's happening in India as Ben Francis is planting these micro-churches and seeing thousands of people come into Christ. It's about the crusades that are taking place in Africa and stories of healings and deliverances. You know, it's happening all over the world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned all of this from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us 
of your love in the Spirit. So he's trying to G them up. He's trying to say, come on. You know what you believe. It's true. Your salvation is certain. But clearly there's something fishy going on amongst them. These false teachers had come in and had sown these seeds of doubt. You get a fantastic little passage in uh, verses 26 through 27 where Paul basically says, look, if, if this isn't true, if you've never been born again, if, if you uh, really aren't a Christian, well, you can't appreciate anything that I'm writing to you about. You can't appreciate anything about worship or anything. Um, you just, you know, you're out of touch with everything. Now, it's fair to say that in Christianity, there's always a bit of the supernatural. There's always a bit of a mystery about stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes back to this. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's what it boils down to. And if you look at these verses, that's what you'll see him asking. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard. It's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery, because it is a mystery, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to whom God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying to them, it all boils down at the end of the day, not to how often you go to chapel, not to how much of the Bible you uh, have memorized or even understand, not how big or how small your tithe is, not how many ministries you're involved in in the life of the church, how many programs you head up. No, no. Do you know Jesus? That's the question that is for every single one of us here this morning. I don't care whether you're the minister of another church. I don't care whether you are a deacon in this church, a fellow pastor in this church, whether you hold an office, a rank, whether you're involved in a ministry. I just want to ask you this. Do you know Jesus? Because at the end of the day, that's what changes everything. See, the issue for Paul in Colossae was these circumcisers had come in and started meddling with people's beliefs. They'd started telling them, oh, you need to be doing this and you need to be doing that and you need to start observing this and start observing that. And he's saying to them, you're already saved. You're already Christians. You are acceptable to God. You are already experiencing the hope of glory in your lives. You're going to go to heaven. Why? Because of Jesus. And because Jesus was living inside of these people, they didn't have to jump through any hoops. They didn't have to do anything dramatic. They were acceptable just as they were. 
Now, this is such an important thing to get our minds around in 2018. Because in 2018, there are people going around churches, and there are books for sale in bookshops, and there are articles that you can read on the internet, and there are preachers preaching a gospel on YouTube, and there are people on your satellite channels who are telling everybody, oh, it's not enough just to know Jesus. What was being addressed by Paul in Colossae actually needs to be addressed today. This is so important for us. Now, there may be no Jewish believers visiting modern-day congregations telling all of us, guys, we need to get circumcised. Hallelujah. Let me hear a hallelujah from the men. And what you might ask, you know, well, okay, that's not happening. So how does all of this relate to us today? Well, I'm telling you now, many, many Christians feel that they are burdened by all kinds of expectations about things they should be doing, these add-ons. Remember, the critical thing here, the thing that makes it all a bit of a mystery, remember Paul used that word in that passage I just read? Wasn't just that God would accept the Gentiles. Blinking heck, that is a bit of a mystery. As far as, if you were a Jewish Christian, you'd be like, what? Accept the Gentiles? That is a bit of a mystery. But as time goes on, the bigger mystery is, well, the rule seems, seems to, seem to have changed. Circumcision, which was such a big part of the Jewish faith, is no longer a vital part of God's covenanted relationship with people. And it was, and it still is, quite frankly, a mystery, isn't it? That God would just let anybody be acceptable to him. It was, and still is, a mystery that God would allow those who were once known as his enemies to be now known as his friends. The mystery was that God would accept anybody, anybody like you, anybody like me, and allow us to become his children. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. Because I know what skeletons I've got in my cupboard, and you know what skeletons you've got in your cupboard. And frankly, as I've told you many, many times before, what God should say to Mark Owen is, get lost on your bike. But what he does, he welcomes me. And he says, I forgive you. And he looks to an event that took place 2,000 years ago on a cross outside a city wall, and he recognizes that all of that has effect for me today. And so it's not the fact that I'm a Baptist minister, it's not the fact that I work for the Baptist Union of Wales. <laughs> it's the fact that I know Jesus that changes absolutely everything. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Because that's what's going to matter at the end of the day. It is a mystery that God would accept the likes of us. It's a mystery, isn't it, that God would even accept the people you and I have trouble accepting. That there's hope for every prostitute in Newport. And every drug taker on T-Sign. 
that every person who is marginalised in society, who we might not want to have anything to do with, God says, I love them. And the truth is, you and I will never lock eyes with anybody for whom Jesus didn't die. Do you think about that? You'll never lock eyes with anybody for whom Jesus didn't die. A Muslim, young man. A prostitute in a doorway. A drug taker hiding behind velvet curtains. Jesus died for every one of them. Just as he died for you. Just as he died for me. And so for Paul, it all boils down to Jesus. He's getting the Colossians again to think about their relationship with Jesus. It's not about a pile of other stuff. It's about Jesus. Now, you and I, as I've said, have problems with adulterers and thieves and swindlers and prostitutes. God couldn't forgive such people like that, could he? Well, God has a problem with them. They don't deserve to go to heaven. Remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Do you not know that all the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can't ignore passages of the Bible like that. You can't dip into little bits and say, I like that bit, I don't like that bit. You've got to take the whole thing. The problem is that people take things out of context, don't they? People have no right to go to heaven. No, he's absolutely right. That's what he's saying there. Here's the mystery, though. They can get into heaven. You want proof? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 continues. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's mysterious. You don't deserve to go to heaven, but you can. You don't deserve to know that your sins are forgiven, but you can. Whatever hell is going on in your life this morning, whatever skeletons there are in your cupboard, Whatever you have done that is wrong, it's mysterious, but it is flipping awesome that our God would welcome us. So Paul tells the Colossian Christians exactly the same thing. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So what do they do to suddenly become acceptable to God? What act of contrition do they have to do that is sufficient for God to make him change their mind? A lot of people think that's what you have to do to be acceptable to God. So they come to chapel a lot and sit there. I meant to enjoy this. I don't understand half of it. These songs are really bad. Not the music, the songs. <laughs> When do you stand up? When do you sit down? Why do they do this? How much should I put in the offering? And people think that it's all about doing something to make them acceptable to God, that God will go, oh, I've done ever so well. Come on. 
way you think it works? If that's the way it works, where's the line? Where's the magical line of acceptance then? Because I'm a minister, obviously I've crossed the line, haven't I? I'm acceptable. But you lot, oh, hey, how far back are you? Well, you better go over to spa and keep walking. Where's the line of acceptance? And how many points have you got to earn to be able to get in? Are some of you just going to scrape in? You're going to just make it over the line in time? Others of you looking ahead now going, well, I might as well give up now. Is that what it is? Well, here's the news. The answer is nothing. Absolutely diddly squat. That's the Greek word, diddly squat. <laughs> nothing. Nothing that you can do can sort this out. It's not about changing God's mind. Mind you, some churches would have you believe that you have to, you know, do certain things. And you have to know the Bible inside out, like the new pastor who was asked by his deacons to prove how much he knew the Bible. He was asked to prepare something on the prodigal son. Ninu, come, share this with us. Listen carefully. This is what the young pastor shared with his congregation out of terror. The parable of the prodigal son. One day, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and as he was going, he fell upon stony places. Two are better than one, he said. Thorns grew up and choked him. Later on, rain poured down, rivers flooded, and winds beat against him, leaving this man nearly dead. Ravens, ravens brought him bread and flesh and water he drank from a brook. After he got some strength from this food, next day he went to seek Jesus in the night. The name of this man is Nicodemus. In the morning he decided to go over onto the other side of the sea, going with the boat and arriving with the whale. As soon as he entered into the great city, he spotted Delilah on the wall. He commanded to take her down and cut her into pieces. How many pieces shall we cut? Seven times seven? After they cut her into pieces, they gathered 12 baskets with fragments left over. The great question is this, whose wife will be at the resurrection of the dead? <laughs> you told me that during the week and I said, we gotta have that on Sunday morning. But that's the reality, isn't it? You end up with a gospel that is totally contrived. I think that's brilliant, the way it just weaves in all of these things. And you're sitting there, and initially you're thinking, oh, bless him, he's got it slightly wrong. He's a foreigner. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's his fourth language, you know? And then he carries on. And we were, well, I was nearly on the floor in my study on, on, on the other day when he was telling me that. And that's how it ends up in many churches. You end up being totally confused because stuff gets all wrapped in. And, you know, you, you, you think that, well, I've got to dress a certain way and I have to come in a certain attitude and, and I need to be giving this much into the offering and I, I need to uh, say this and say that and not say this and not say that. And 
let me just reiterate what I said. Nothing you do will make you acceptable to God. Because if it's down to you, well, frankly, I'm stuffed, and so are most other people here. Because you will draw your own conclusions for you. You will have your own rules. That's what we do if we can make up the rules ourselves. Let's all be honest about it. We'll make it so that it benefits us, puts us in an advantageous position. No matter about anybody else. What changed God's mind with the Colossians? What made Gentiles acceptable? Did they know their Bibles better than the poor pastor in Nino's story? What made them acceptable? What changed them from being enemies to being his children? It was nothing they did. So Paul reminds them in Colossians 1, look, once you were alienated from God, you're enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But look at this. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Nothing you have done has merited you getting right with God. Not your faith, not your repentance, not your confessing him as Lord, not your baptism. No one in this building has ever earned a place in heaven. But he has reconciled you. God has done everything it takes to get you right with him. The death of Jesus on the cross is what gives you your salvation. He's the only one that can get you into God's presence because he's the only one who ever died in your place. He's the only one who has shed his blood so that your sins could be removed. Don't be fooled ever, please, into thinking that there's something else that can make you acceptable to God. Whatever you're being told on some of these sky channels, whatever you're reading in some of these nonsense books, he's the only one who shed his blood. There's no other way to be made right with God than through Jesus. A theological college invited a renowned professor as their guest lecturer. He spoke for two and a half hours, establishing proofs that the resurrection of Jesus never took place. It was, as the Bishop of Durham once said, nothing more than a conjuring trick with bones. The professor quoted scholar after scholar, book after book, he concluded that there was no such thing as the historical resurrection. It was indeed a groundless religious tradition. Emotional mumbo-jumbo. After his long lecture, he moved back from the lectern and he asked if there were any questions. 30 seconds went by, nobody dared say anything. An elderly pastor with a head of woolly white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. Professor, I have one question, he said. Everybody's eyes looked at the old guy. He reached into his bag and pulled out an apple. And he began eating it. Crunch. My question is a simple question. Crunch. I have never read the books you've read. Crunch. I can't recite the scriptures in the original Greek. Crunch. Crunch is him eating the apple, okay? <laughs> uh, 
I don't know anything about Niebuhr or Heidegger or anybody else like that. Crunch. And he finished the apple, core and all. Yes, man. <laughs> and he said this. All I want to know is this. The apple I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? Professor paused for a moment and said, well, I can't answer that question. I haven't tasted your apple. Neither of you tasted my Jesus, he said. So I ask you again this morning, have you tasted my Jesus? Do you know him? Do you realize what he's done for you? Because it's all about him. Paul is telling the Colossians and us, it's all about Jesus. Paul goes on and on in this passage. Lots of other things that I could show you if we had time this morning. But I just want to leave you with this thought as we finish. If it's about what you have done and what you can achieve, then we've got a problem. But based on the authority of Scripture, as we've seen this morning, it's not based on you or me. It's based on what God has done in Jesus.